I used to joke about a fellow up in Boston who had a little variety store up there, Hodge White, and we mentioned his name for the fun of it to show him what sort of publicity he could get in the new medium. And it worked out very well. He didn't pay for anything. We just used to mention him every week. And he would keep you tuned, of course, while, uh, while you were oh, on yes. the Oh, yes. That time we had the show called Town Hall Tonight, and he used to have our program on every week. Nine to ten, it was. He had some problems in there because his meat slicer used to put static in his radio, so you couldn't buy any meat there from nine to ten. And what kind of reaction did he get? Well, it made a lot of trouble for him. People came all from around the country and also New England to look at his store and to get his autograph and then disturb him at his work. He saw the power of the medium and didn't want any part of it. Produced by Darrell Zanuck, written by Harry Tugand and Jack Yellen, Love is News registers comedy triumph. Town Hall News brings you a 10-second preview of this excellent film. When anyone received a letter from Fred Allen out here on the coast, it was like getting a first edition. Everyone would get a call, say, I want you to come over and read the letter, because it was invariably, it was such a funny letter. He loved to keep in touch with people, and he, you know, all of his letters were in small letters. He never used any capitals, but they were always gems of wit. Now, on Friday night, there will be an... Oh, God. Now, quiet, please. Look, if that is somebody left over from a... Uh, hello? <laughs> well, say you've done it again, haven't you? <laughs> and this wonderful woman, she was a great inspiration to Fred in everything he did because he respected her so much. When he would write hour after hour and hour at any time in the morning, she was with him, always. All night when he'd be writing, and she would set the time for him to take the walks. When she'd say, that's enough, let's take a walk, he would drop everything. I didn't mind it when you scraped that overnight bag two weeks ago <laughs> and called that playing the deed. Yeah. But when you stand here tonight and set that whooping cough to music... <laughs> And call that singing, you're going too far. Oh, you didn't like it, huh? Fred had a boy violinist on the show. He was 10 years old. And he played the B. And when he got through with the number, he said to him, he asked his boy, said, how old are you? And the boy says, 10. He says, 10 years old, and you played the B so well. He says, Jack Benny ought to be ashamed of himself. And that's all he said. And he probably said that, knowing that I was listening to his show, just to make me laugh. Who sent that? It's I'm Jack Benny. Oh, Jackie, eh? He's a friend. Oh, there's a sweet guy, Portland. Good old Jackie. Gosh, he's so sweet, he's almost sticky. <laughs> to send a birthday wire when it isn't your birthday. Listen, it isn't the stupidity. It's the sentiment gets me. <laughs> There's the whitest guy I know. Yes, you said he was a anemic. <laughs> now, listen, don't let anyone tell you Jackie Benny's anemic. He just stays white on purpose so everybody else will look healthy. Gosh, Jack must have a big heart. Why, Jackie Benny's heart so big, you can put a stethoscope on him any place and get action. 
Did you hear his program last Sunday? Yes. What was that static right in the middle of it? Static? Was it before or after Jack and I sang? It was during. Sure. Well, let me tell you something. May 1933, Subrural Maine. We're here on vacation with Fred Allen and his wife, Portland Hoffa, shortly after his Lynette Bath Club Review radio show was canceled. It had just wrapped a one-season run Sundays at 9 p.m. on CBS. Allen had been paid $1,000 per week and was responsible for the entire cost of the show with this $1,000. He wrote the season with Harry Tugant and felt they were improving, but early problems with sponsors and executives, as well as Lynette's distrust for the viability of radio as an advertising medium, forced him off the air. He needed to get the production out of his system. Allen left New York with Portland Hoffa for the Pine Tree State. One morning, two weeks later, this telephone attached to a tree at the edge of a forest rang with news for him. The man who answered this phone will shortly be running a mile up the road to Fred's cottage to tell him that he's wanted back in New York. Hellman's mayonnaise desperately wants him to star in a new program. On Friday, August 4th, 1933, Fred Allen would premiere as the MC of the Salad Bowl Review on NBC at 10 p.m. and marked the beginning of a decade and a half on the air. He'd be sponsored by such brands as Ipana Toothpaste, Sal Hepatica Laxatives, Texaco Gasoline, Ford Motors, and Tenderleaf Tea. Throughout that time, Fred Allen would have high ratings, hypertension, feuds, arguments, and critical praise from presidents, Pulitzer Prize winners, and peers. He was hailed as a man who could have been the 20th century's version of Mark Twain, if only he'd wanted to. Would you like to swing on a star? Welcome to Breaking Harry Walls, episode number 81. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight Fred Allen one of the most forward-thinking, popular, well-read comedians of the first half of the 20th century. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes, everywhere you might get a podcast, or at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme, it's Swingin' on a Star, a gold record number one hit in 1944. That year, Fred Allen's Texaco Star Theater occupied one of radio's most coveted time slots, Sundays at 9.30 p.m., for the Columbia Broadcasting System. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, especially on iTunes, scroll down, give a quick rating. It helps that iTunes algorithm, and more people will discover this show. You can also support this show in our Philip Marlowe, A Man Named Marlowe miniseries, and unlock juicy bonus content and other fun extras for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And to keep easily abreast with the show, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group or follow the show on Instagram and on Twitter. Alan Fred, born in Boston, and at my birth, a strange thing happened. The doctor slapped me after I started crying. <laughs> my first brush with a critic. My parents immediately started me in show business by taking an ad in Variety, announcing my arrival. Fred Allen has diaper, will travel. <laughs> I travel to the three corners of the earth. 
Since then, there have been many changes. I'm not referring to the diet. Through general acceptance, I think you find that things change as you progress. Not always for the better, but they change. <laughs> Life is constant adjustment to change. I mean, nothing stays as it is. And I'm sorry about that. It is uh, unfortunate that you can't just pick a time in your life where things are going well and the children are at a certain age and you just stop there and just live eternally, but you can't do that. He was born John Florence Sullivan to Irish Catholic parents in Cambridge, Massachusetts on May 31, 1894. His mother Cecilia died of pneumonia when he was just two years old. John, his younger brother Robert, and his father James Henry Sullivan were soon taken in by his maternal aunt Lizzie. As John grew, his father sank into a deep depression, turning more and more to alcohol to ease the pain he felt for his lost love. Young John took piano lessons as a boy, but he could only play two songs, Hiawatha and Pitter-Patter Little Raindrops. Later, when his father remarried, he gave John a choice as to who he wanted to live with. He chose his aunt Lizzie, a decision he never regretted. On his 14th birthday in 1908, John met his father at Conkeefe's Bar on Dartmouth Street in Boston. There he was introduced to a Mr. Billy Hempstead, his soon-to-be boss at the Boston Public Library. The job paid 20 cents an hour. Money was tight. He gave a portion of what he earned back to his aunt for household expenses. It was at the library one night while going through the shelves that he found the book which told about the origin and development of comedy. A born performer, he soon began to juggle practicing for the next three years. Shortly after graduating high school, the Boston Public Library was putting on an employee talent show. With the urging from his co-workers, John agreed to appear. He put together a juggling routine, juggling various objects like plates, tennis balls, cigar boxes, and hats, while telling jokes between tricks. Mixed in with the many song and dance acts, he was a big success. That night, while packing his items, a girl approached and said, You're crazy to keep working here at the library. You should go on stage. Alan later wrote that he often wondered who that girl was. If she'd only kept her mouth shut that night, he might have been a librarian. But the showbiz seed had been planted. It was now 1912, and Sullivan was on his way to a career in performing. What time of your life, if you could do that, would you want to... Well, I've been so busy, I've never given it any thought. It's a waste of time anyway. You can't accomplish it, so why waste your time thinking about something you can't do? Well, I would think possible. you would have picked the time when Sunday nights you had the greatest radio program in the country. I also had the greatest aggravation and the greatest stress and the bigger taxes at that time, too. So here's there something on the other side. There's something to be said on the government side, too. <laughs> he began as a juggler in amateur competitions, bringing his equipment with him to work at the library and practicing on his lunch break. A crowd of co-workers would gather whenever he juggled. Soon, he began to perform on amateur nights for a local promoter named Sam Cohen. It wasn't long before he became one of Cohen's most trusted men. At one of the amateur nights at a Boston theater, Sullivan met a fellow juggler named Harry Latoy, who became an early mentor and rechristened him as Freddie St. James, taking the name from a nearby St. James Hotel. Freddie St. James then got a job performing on a local vaudeville circuit for $30 per week, much more than the $2 per day he earned at the library. He quit all of his other jobs and took up juggling full-time. By the summer of 1914, Fred was playing all over New England and meeting actors from New York. 
He was billed as Freddie St. James, the world's worst juggler, finding that, through self-deprecating comedy, it was easier to get applause than for a mediocre juggling act. By claiming his act was bad, Freddie's audience actually thought his act was good. One day, Fred saw an ad in a copy of Players, the official publication of the White Rats, Vaudeville's Union. He had read Miss Montfort's, 104 West 40th Street, New York City, room and board, $1 per day. Fred decided to save some money. He felt that if he saved $100, he could take 60 with him to New York to try to make it. If and when he ran out of the 60, he'd send for the additional 40 to buy a return trip back to Boston and help sustain himself when he got back. He was willing to take the risk and wanted to hedge his bet. His Aunt Lizzie didn't approve of being a performer. She felt that all actors wound up poor drunks. So Fred only told her he was going out of town for a week. During his last date in Boston at the Scenic Temple on Clarendon Street, he bought a suitcase to hold his few belongings and a sample case to hold his juggling props. On Friday, September 18, 1914, he walked into Boston's South Station and boarded a local train for Fall River. Later that afternoon, with a copy of the New York Times in tow, Fred left Manhattan by ship on the old Fall River Line. Saturday, September 19, 1914, 8 a.m. Fred St. James is pulling up to Miss Montfort's boarding house on West 40th Street, right near Bryant Park. His room won't be ready for a few hours, so he decides to take a stroll around Times Square. He sees the attractions of the Great White Way for the first time. Hammersmith's on 43rd, Shanley's Restaurant, frequented by the stars, the Astor Hotel, the Astor Theater, the Gaiety, the Globe, the Criterion, the Winter Gardens, the New York, and the Palace, the mecca for vaudeville performers. There's Churchill's, there's Rector's, and there's the Automat, the first place that allowed a poor man to enjoy food served under glass. Even here at this quiet hour, Times Square is alive. After breakfast, Fred walked into the Putnam Building, 1501 Broadway between West 43rd and 44th Streets, which would later be replaced by the Paramount Theater. There he noticed one of the agents was in, Tom Jones. He told Mr. Jones the nature of his act. Jones chuckled and explained that an act had just fallen out of the bill at the Keeney Theater on Livingston Street in Hanover Place, one of the busiest areas in Brooklyn. In New York for less than two hours, and Fred was already booked for three days the following week. Although his room at the Montfort was windowless and tiny, it was the characters Fred met at the boarding house that helped propel him forward. Most were performers of some kind, like-minded and eager. There was Twisto the Contortionist, Broomstick Elliot, the four Banta brothers, the Texas Tommy Dancers, the Carberry brothers, one of whom, John, became a good friend. 
They all practiced together, ate together, argued together. For Fred, a young man who knew almost no one in a city with several million people, it was perfect company. They also had one major thing in common. All were struggling to get ahead. Fred's first New York City gig didn't last long, and he soon found himself amongst the gainfully unemployed. When the Montfort soon foreclosed, John Carberry and Fred got a room together at Mrs. Lowry's boarding house on 48th Street. At least this room had a window. But week after week, Fred sat in various booking offices with no luck. He was running out of money. One Monday, he decided to go home. At 5 p.m. that afternoon, Fred went to send a telegram to a connection in Boston requesting the $40 he'd saved. As he turned onto Broadway from 40th Street towards the Western Union office, Fred ran into a friend named Lou Edelman. Lou was happy to see him and act at the Empire Theater in Patterson, New Jersey on the Poli circuit had been canceled after the matinee performance. Lou had been sent to find the fill-in. He found his man. This chance encounter helped Fred meet his new agent, Mark Letty, who was soon booking him on Marcus Lowe's circuit for $75 per week. He played the Fulton Theater in Brooklyn and the Greeley in the Garment District. It led him to being booked across the country and finally to Australia. But Australia changed Fred's routine. He couldn't use gags Americans found funny. And in 1916, Australia was in the middle of World War I, a happy society it was not. There he played Cape Town in Brisbane, learning to wear his hair in a local style to avoid as much foreign animosity as possible. But overall, he felt unwelcome. Australia helped Fred's comedy, but it was a place he was excited to leave, working his way back to New York through Western vaudeville bookings set up by Letty. He was now Freddie James, and no longer a saint. The juggling was slowly giving way, first to a ventriloquist act, then later to banjo music with photographic props. It all served as window dressing for his developing monologue. His billing now read, Freddie James, acting done reasonable, 12 minutes in one. And in one was a performer who worked alone in front of the curtain so that more elaborate performances could be set up or broken down at the same time. Fred's talents were in vogue. He was moving up the billing. While just 23 years old, he played San Francisco, southwestern Canada, St. Louis, and Chicago. When Fred finally returned to New York, Mark Letty decided it was time to change his name. Freddie James was a nice mid-tier act. He had steadily earned at least $75 per week for two years across the world. But for him to take the next step, refinement was needed. By changing his name along with evolving his act, he'd be seen as a new talent. Here, friend Benny Drone explains how Fred got a new name. He was up in a booking office. A fellow by the name of Edgar Allen used to book the Fox circuit around New York, and he was looking for work, and the guy says, what do you do? He says, I juggle. He says, go right down to the 14th Street Theater, the Fox Theater down there, and get your stuff down there and you'll be able to go on for the rest of the day and it's a split week. You'll get the three days pay. So after he left, the man at the theater called up and said, what's this fellow's name he's sending down because we'd like to put his name out with the rest of the vaudeville bill in front of the theater. And this fellow, Edgar Allen, said his name is Edgar Allen. And the fellow on the other side thought he said Fred Allen, so out went Fred Allen, and from then on he was known as Fred Allen. One day he was booked by the Fox Circuit at the City Theater on 14th Street near 3rd Avenue. 
When Fred arrived at the theater for rehearsal, he found that the booker had given him a new name. And that name was Fred Allen. Mary, no! God, let let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on February 25th, 1918, Fred Allen arrived at the Poly Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, to find a notice from the draft board. Because he was his Aunt Lizzie's sole supporter, he received a temporary deferment. This, however, altered his routine further. Allen had seen firsthand what the effect of World War I did to a civilian's population sense of humor in Australia, and he sensed a similar outbreak of negativity coming to the U.S., that spring, he played the Jules Delmar circuit from Virginia through Mississippi and into New Orleans. His success there helped Allen get booked for the next year through the Midwest, in Louisville, St. Louis, and Chicago. By now, his act included projected nationalistic photography to help stir an impassioned crowd into easy applause. Of his Chicago performance, a critic wrote, Fred Allen has an original idea of entertaining and gets laughs every minute. His act is wholly his own, and is full of the best kind of fun. He was booked straight through the next year, all through the U.S., and in New York at the Royal, the Colonial, and the Bushwick. He spent the summer of 1919 in Boston with his aunt, taking odd bookings on the side to keep busy. Back in New York in the fall, he played the Lowe's Circuit for $275 a week, $4,000 by today's standards, with the likes of Mae West, George Burns, and Al Jolson's brother Harry. When he played the Alhambra in Harlem, Variety Magazine wrote, Fred Allen scored the laughing hit of the bill with one of the most original monologues seen in vaudeville. He was now able to simultaneously ad-lib with the best ad-libbers and write a routine with the best routine writers. Fred Allen was finally ready for the big time. That big time was Broadway. In 1922, he was hired by the upstart Schubert Brothers for $400 per week. Have you been on a radio program regularly? Has it been on the air for a long time? And you're a lady. Is your voice terribly well known to some member of this panel? Sometimes yes and sometimes no? I think yes would be right for that. Yes is the answer? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, is your <laughs> is your first name from Maine and your last name from this panel? Yes, it is. <laughs> is it Portland, huh? Right. <laughs> 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 
I didn't realize he was a ringer there. The ringer. Mrs. Fred Allen, meet Mr. Fred Allen. Nice to meet you, dear. This has been the longest evening. Really? Yes. I didn't realize that you weren't a recognized act until I came out tonight. When J.J. Schubert hired Fred Allen, it was for the role of a monologist in a Broadway production of The Passing Show of 1922. Allen would be performing his usual routine in front of the curtain while scenery was being changed behind. He was in charge of writing his own material. One popular gag was the Old Joke Cemetery. Allen had a curtain painted as a graveyard. On the tombstones were the punchlines to 46 old jokes. When the show moved to Chicago after six months, Allen met a dancer there named Portland Hoffa. He was soon instructed by the theater company that the show was moving to Hollywood. His cemetery gag prop curtain, however, was not. Allen quit. Back in New York, he demanded a $50 royalty check from the Schuberts when the gag turned up in other acts. They rehired him to MC Artists and Models, the first American review to showcase chorus women topless. It was Allen's job to come on after the woman finished. The Schuberts and Allen soon came to a mutual release. He followed with the Greenwich Village Follies, similar intimate reviews until Portland joined him in his act. The pair were married in 1928. In 1956, their friend Jim Harkins reflected upon Fred and Portland's relationship. And this wonderful woman, she was a great inspiration to Fred in everything he did because he respected her so much. When he would write hour after hour and hour at any time in the morning, she was with him, always all night when he'd be writing, and she would set the time for him to take the walks. When she'd say, that's enough, let's take a walk, he would drop everything. There was never any such thing as a squabble in that family, and there was no one ever as married as they were, because they were always together, everywhere, no matter where they went. He went nowhere without her, and the same with Portman. She never went anywhere without him. And if they walked down the street and holding hands, it wasn't any silly holding hands. It was a beautiful bond between two people that... The average person today with this crazy way of living doesn't understand. Together, they were able to get big-time bookings in New York and throughout the rest of the country with the Orpheum Circuit. In 1932, Allen had finished a two-year run in Three's a Crowd, a musical review with Clifton Webb and Libby Holman. In September, he was to return to Broadway with Polly, an Arthur Hammerstein project. When Fred returned to New York, though, he found out that promises could be broken and the project was dead. He began to wonder about radio. By 1932, many big names like host Ed Sullivan and comedians like Ed Wynn and his good friend George Jessel were already involved in the new medium. Jessel helped convince him to audition. He was an actor of the old school, you know, a comedian with a fine intellect. His talents would have stood up in the days of Raymond Hitchcock, Nat Goodwin, Willie Collier, and Julius Tannen on the stage. And the lecture halls, he would have ably held his own with any Will Rogers, Peter Finley Dunn, and all the other giants of a more literate age. And as I think of him now, I think that Fred would have been more appreciated in the days of swirling capes and low bows. Alan felt that writing a complete story in each episode or a series of episodes that better engaged the home listener would have much more long-term appeal to a radio audience. He planned a series of programs, each centered on a different business background, a bank, a department store, a detective agency. The characters would be employees and other locals. The Corn Products Company was looking for a show for their Lynette Beauty Powder. Allen got the job as host. This is Roger White, Fred Allen's producer in the days of the Lynette Bath Club.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Linnet, who present another in their series of Linnet Bath Club Reviews, starring Fred Allen. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Who is it from, boy? Joe Miller, the old joke man. Yes? He says he can't be here tonight. That's too bad. The telegram's correct. To save you the trouble, I read it on the way up. To save me some more trouble, you can pay for it on the way back. Okay. And now, on with the show. After six or seven weeks, the critics, everybody, who is this Fred Allen? That's what really started him. All the radio critics just want to know who Fred Allen was. From there on, he really started to rise. The Linnet Bath Club Review made its premiere on Sunday, October 23rd, 1932 at 9 p.m. on CBS. It was produced by Roger White, announced by Ken Roberts, and featured singer Helen Morgan, impersonator Sheila Barrett, as well as Roy Atwell, Jack Smart, and Charlie Carlyle. Right from the beginning, though, the control-oriented Allen had trouble with his sponsors and advertising executives. Years later, in 1954, while on Texan Jinx, he explained... Didn't you even have a sponsor's wife who made suggestions who contributed to your program? That's true. In the early days, on our first program, the Linnet program, we had the sponsor's wife like organ music. And right in the middle of our comedy program, every week we had to have an organ solo. And then when the woman found out that the organ was not in the studio, that it was two miles away from the studio and was piped in, this electronic marvel astounded her, and she thought that the people should be let in on that, so we had to announce that the organ is not in the studio, it's two miles away. Oh, and no. And if you didn't believe it, you could go walk it. <laughs> as far as we were concerned, it was uphill, too. Because Alan had to pay for the entire show from his $1,000 a week salary, he wrote them himself with his partner, Harry Tugant. It wasn't so much that he couldn't take direction. He just often felt the direction he received was biased or was given with ignorance to radio as an entertainment medium. This would become a reoccurrence throughout his career. The program was canceled after six months. As mentioned earlier, Fred returned to radio on NBC Friday, August 4, 1933 with the Salad Bowl Review for Hellman's Mayonnaise. Minerva Pius joined the cast. She'd later be known for her ethnic character portrayals. It would mark the beginning of a six-year relationship with the National Broadcasting Company. Alan's salary was raised to $4,000 per week. It seemed there was money in radio after all. Presenting Fred Allen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And as Robinson Crusoe used to say whenever he heard static, well, if it isn't Friday again. But in those days, Friday didn't bring him the salad bowl review. The papers say that the hunting season has opened, and everyone knows that the well-dressed quail is wearing a feathered frown. But while the hunter is away, his wife home in the kitchen doesn't even have to hunt through her recipe book to find that the well-dressed salad is still wearing Hellman's mayonnaise. So much for hunting unless you've lost something. Tonight, if you'll step into the salad bowl, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take you back to the Bedlam Sanatorium. I am still Dr. Allen, and while I'm getting my breath after running a temperature, Ferdy Grofay will show you into the waiting room accompanied by his orchestra. It was on the Salad Bowl Review that Allen introduced the etiquette department and the question box in which audience members could write in to have questions answered on the air. They were advertised any question that could get by the censors would be entertained. Allen started a newsreel, the forerunner to his satirical comedy that would become the news of the week and inspire countless radio and TV comedians. His ratings were climbing. 
the ad agency who held the Hellman's account liked the program enough that they kept it on the air throughout the autumn, long past mayonnaise's shelf life during a time when it was a seasonal condiment for salads. However, by Christmas season, there were no salad greens left to be had. The Salad Bowl Review exited the airwaves on December 1st, 1933. But another one of the agency's products, Sal Hepatica Laxatives from Bristol-Myers, wanted in. Beginning on January 4th, 1934, Fred Allen debuted as the MC for the Sal Hepatica Review. Years later, Allen was asked if he had a sponsor preference, and if there was any kind of sponsor he wouldn't have. No, I don't know. We were on for laxative, and we, <laughs> we were on for cigarettes. We've been on for a number of things. No, I don't. I, if it's within the law, I don't see why I should be concerned. People are in a legitimate business, and they want to sponsor me, or they can legally advertise. I don't see why I should be the one to say I don't want to be associated with it. It was so successful that on March 21st, 1934, the broadcast was expanded to an hour to include Ipana toothpaste and dubbed the Hour of Smiles. Allen was given no additional budget, and each show had to be performed twice, one for each coast. He later hired a couple of assistants to help him with scripts. One of them was Herman Wook, who later go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for his 1951 novel, The Cane Mutiny. I was one of his assistant scriptwriters in Town Hall Tonight. Of course, Fred was by far the best writer of the lot on the show, and I think I can say, and nobody would argue this statement, that Fred was the best writer that radio ever had. He was an original humorist, the first quality, and the purpose of having youngsters like myself around was simply to uh, eke out the sheer volume of the material. By then, Allen's program style had taken on elements of a local review with the news. On July 11th, the show was retitled Town Hall Tonight. The tiny budget left no room for big stars, so Allen had to develop plot lines. Things were running smoothly until Allen was called into the agency offices. They objected to some of his jokes and didn't like the concept of a running gag, something Allen had begun to develop. In Treadmill to Oblivion, Allen explained that running gags were very important on radio. They subtly carried over from one program to the next and stimulated the listener's interest. The agency disagreed. Allen paid them no mind. Why do you describe an advertising agency as being 85% confusion and 15% commission? Well, because in the early days of radio, these men who are good, competent businessmen, I certainly were good advertising men, were thrown into yeah. another business that they didn't understand. Oh, right. They didn't know anything about show business or actors, and consequently, they just treated all of us the way they treated their copy or their tomatoes or the things that they were trying to sell or advertise in the other media until radio got started. Mm -hmm. They were forcing their opinions on the actors and the things that the audience got were the, uh, the likes and dislikes of their friends and relatives and close associates, you know. Well, don't, I don't mean, they, they, compel, they, they foisted their tastes on the general public. I mean, if a sponsor liked a violin player, he had a violin player on his own. The people may not like violin players, mm -hmm. as proven by Jack Benny's career. He was forced into comedy off the musical, off the concert stage. Sunday, December 30th, 1936, during the East Coast broadcast of Town Hall Tonight, Alan had on, in his amateur performance section of the show, a boy violinist named Stuart Cannon. Cannon played a violin solo of Schubert's The Bee. Jack Benny was known to play the violin with great effort and very poorly, but he had the country's highest rated program. Fred Allen had no way of knowing whether Jack would respond. 
think it's too bad, Stuart, that we haven't time to ask you to play an encore. You are, without a doubt, the most remarkable child violinist I have ever heard. Am I right, Murray? What I do you think? I think so. How long have you been studying? Five years. Five years, huh? And you're ten years old? Yes. That isn't a full-size violin, yes. is it? No. Did you, did you start on that at five years or a smaller? No, smaller one. Smaller than yes. the man, huh? Three quarters. That's a three quarters, isn't yes. it? Imagine if ten or fifteen years from now and you're playing the cello up under your chin. <laughs> what grade are you in at school? Public school. Public school? Do you go to public school? Five B. Five B? Where do you live? Edgemere? Edgemere. And you're in five B, huh? Yeah. What do you know, Murray? A little fella in the fifth grade of school and already plays better than Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we want to thank you very much, Stuart, and it's certainly been a pleasure to have you here. Fred had a boy violinist on the show. He was 10 years old, and he played the B. And when he got through with the number, he said to him, he asked his boy, he said, how old are you? And the boy says, 10. He says, 10 years old, and you played the B so well. He says, Jack Benny ought to be ashamed of himself. And that's all he said. And he probably said that, knowing that I was listening to his show, just to make me laugh. So on the next show, on my show, at the very tag of the show, the thing we call the tag, I said to Mary, and this was merely to make Fred laugh, I said, Mary, take this, I'm going to dictate a message to Fred Allen. I want you to mail it for me. Say, dear Fred, when I was 10 years old, I could play the B too. Well, the next week, Fred had some stooges on who were supposed to have known me in Waukegan, Illinois, to prove that I couldn't play the B when I was 10 years old. The following week on my show, I brought people on from Waukegan who said I could play the B when I was 10 years old. And before we knew it, we were into the darndest feud you have ever seen, which was very funny. And the strange part of it is, I can safely say from six to eight months with this feud, before we even called each other on the phone about it. On the January 31st, 1937 episode of the Benny Program, Stuart Cannon was on. Jack promised to play the B the following week, but the next week, his violin was stolen. After a week in the desert, we bring you that sun-baked comedian with the warmed-over jokes, Jack Benny. Yes, sir. Hello again, this is Jack Benny, that little ray of sunshine, just back from a week at Palm Springs and feeling twice as healthy as ever before, and anything but anemic. Well, that's fine, Jack, that's fine. Uh, did you get on there to get rid of your cold? Yes, Don, my cold and Fred Allen. <laughs> the cold doesn't bother me anymore. Well, tell me, Jack, uh, have you had any more dreams about Allen since last Sunday? Yes, I have, and it certainly makes a lie out of that old saying that you meet a better class of people in your dreams. <laughs> Say, uh, not wishing to interrupt myself, but uh, while I think of it, did you uh, hear Mr. B last Sunday? Oh, yeah. Yes, Jack had a pretty good program, didn't he, Fred? You don't think it sounded any better just because it was coming out of the Waldorf Astoria, do you? <laughs> I'll bet he won't get his program in there again next Sunday without baggage. Why? <laughs> what do you mean, Fred? Jack didn't pull any faux pas at the Waldorf, did he? Why, that Oak Day. 
You know, coming out, walking down the, one of the long halls there, he saw a lot of empty finger bowls stacked up on a table. You mean to say Jack didn't know what they were? He never saw a finger bowl before. He said, gosh, the next war is going to be terrible. They're making trench hats for children. <laughs> no kidding. Imagine that guy driving up in front of the Waldorf in a trailer. <laughs> the doorman must have been plenty mortified. At the Waldorf? Yeah. The doorman at the Waldorf didn't even know what the trailer was. He thought one of the penthouses blew off the roof. <laughs> Oh, say, uh, Fred, did you hear Jack say that you missed... Each successive week, the feud built until it was decided that Benny and Allen would meet in the fight of the century on March 14th. NBC was flooded with ticket requests. The entire country was caught up. The show was moved to the Grand Ballroom at the Pierre Hotel to accommodate the crowds. If it isn't Boo Allen... Now, listen, Allen, what's the idea of breaking in here in the middle of my singing? Singing? Yes. Now, listen, Betty... I didn't mind it when you scraped that overnight bag two weeks ago <laughs> and called that playing the bees. Yeah. But when you stand here tonight and set that whooping cough to music <laughs> and call that singing, you're going too far. Oh, you didn't like it, huh? Like it? Why, you make Andy Devine sound like Lawrence Tibbet. <laughs> Now, look here, Alan. I don't care what you say about my singing or my violin playing on your own program. But when you come up here, be careful. After all, I've got listeners. Keep your family out of this. <laughs> listen. My family, my family likes my singing and my violin playing, too. Your violin playing? Yeah. You're using the verb loosely, Mr. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Why, uh... <laughs> Why, if I was a horse, if I was a pony even, yeah. and found out, found out that my tail, <laughs> found out that any part of my tail was being used in your violin bow, I'd hang my head in my oat bag from then on. <laughs> Well, you listen to me, you Wednesday night hawk. Another crack like that, and Town Hall will be looking for a new janitor. Why? Why, you fugitive from a Ripley cartoon? <laughs> I ought to bend your nose around until if you want to smell anything, you'll have to curb it. <laughs> you lay a hand on me. Slip. You lay a hand on me. <laughs> Anything we'll say accidentally will be better than the script. <laughs> now, see, you lay a hand on me, Benny, and you'll be hollering strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and health. Oh, listen to that smile of beauty. Keep this up, Alan, and I'll ask Don Wilson to fall on you. When a Wilson falls on you, you know what that means. Huh? Oh, boy, press ham. <laughs> that a girl, Mary, that's a honey. Quiet, coward. Coward? <laughs> yes, coward, and she doesn't mean that English entertainer, Noel. I... <laughs> now, Alan, I'm up here... The two stepped outside to have it out, but when they returned, they were back-slapping and remembering the good old days of Orville. Later, they performed a song together. Fred Allen's ploy had worked. His ratings had steadily climbed during the winter. From then on, jokes about Benny were surefire hits. Jack, 
Don't get excited. Look, if you're cheap, you're cheap. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Some people save asparagus ends. It's a hobby. My hobby is not spending. <laughs> I hate to get these big laughs on your program. (laughs) The increased ratings didn't stop Fred Allen from worrying. Sylvester Pat Weaver, who later became NBC president, was producing Fred Allen's show in the 1930s. Fred was doing a very literate, high-class program, even though it was broadly conceived in many ways and had a tremendous audience, which a lot of critics, particularly intellectual critics, now forget. They forget that the Fred Allen show... The Town Hall Tonight Show in those days, in the middle 30s, reached, according to our research at the time, about three homes out of four, three radio homes out of four, followed the Fred Allen Show. This is as big an audience as anybody could get. He now had one of the most topical, intelligent programs on the air. In October of 1939, against his wishes, the title of Town Hall Tonight was changed to the Fred Allen Show. The Town Hall News became the March of Time. It marked the end of a successful decade of performance and notoriety for one of America's most famous comedians. But the constant stress of writing a weekly, hour-long production was getting to Fred. He was seemingly always at odds with his sponsors and the network. He didn't like their meddling. They felt he was consistently pushing the envelope. Former chief of programming for NBC, John F. Royal, remembers Fred Allen's work ethic in this clip from 1956. While many actors were playing the horses or the nightclubs, Fred would be in his dressing room playing the typewriter one finger, either writing for himself or writing for some other artist not so well off who needed some material. He never became competitive with people. Fred never kicked about billing. He never kicked about dressing rooms. All he wanted was a space in one where he could go out and work. Fred never was vicious. Fred would always pick a big target because if you're going to be provocative, and he was provocative, he made provocation. And people would take sides and they'd bow. And he went on the basis of using words instead of the old slapstick or the bladder. He would throw custard pies with words. In the constant search for new material, on March 20th, 1940, Fred invited Falconer Charles Knight in for a People You Don't Expect to Meet interview. With Knight was a full-grown golden eagle named Mr. Ramshaw perched on his arm. During the broadcast, the eagle flew away in the studio. John F. Royal and John Crosby were both there. Well, it was a very large studio. The eagle was bald-headed, as the American national bird is. But he became excited, and in flying from the stage to the rear balcony, his feathers flew. The night the eagle got loose was something Fred never quite got over. The eagle got loose and committed an indiscretion right on the the audience. There were roars of laughter. Whether this really meant anything to the radio audience or not, I don't know. But they kept kidding about it for weeks and weeks later. The eagle just, uh, I didn't know the eagle was cross-eyed. He was flying for that, you see. <laughs> How are you going to get him down, Captain? <laughs> Looks as though he might go with the lease in here after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you get him down the back way, will you? <laughs> All right, thanks. Mr. Ramshaw is up there, but with his back turned to the program, I guess he's seen all that interests him. <laughs> and, uh, Miss Wynn Murray, I'll keep my eye on the eagle, Wynn. You just, you can take care of the singing. Miss Wynn Murray is... <laughs> this is apt to be a half-hour program tonight. <laughs> Mr. 
All we need is Mr. Ramshaw to uh, make his own station break, and we'll make it. <laughs> While the studio audience, the cast, and the listeners loved it, NBC executives did not. They'd had enough of each other. On June 26, 1940, the Fred Allen Show came to a close. Fred was a rebel against authority. He objected to authority whenever it attempted to interfere with what he wanted to do. Fred actually was not a comedian who used blue material. But the censors were terribly cautious, shall we say, and uh, would frequently read into the line something that was not there. Fred Allen desperately needed a break. He decided to take the summer off. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? Gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. The Texaco Star Theater. Wednesday, October 2nd, 1940, at 9 p.m., Fred Allen was back on the air as the host and MC of the Texaco Star Theater, sponsored by the Texas Company. The cast would be renamed, but remain. The Mighty Allen Art Players became the Texaco Workshop Players. The biggest change was the show's network. For the first time since 1933, Allen moved to CBS, a network known for pushing the medium of radio in new directions. Another major change was the runtime. For years, Allen had been fretting over writing enough material for a weekly hour-long program. In October of 1942, the Texaco Star Theater became a half-hour program, airing Sundays at 9.30 p.m. Instead of four comedy spots, they did two. The relaxed dialogue became much more brisk. The guest star spot had to be crammed into a 10-minute period. When World War II began, the complexion of the news items covered by Allen changed greatly. As the war progressed, the American government instituted rations on food, rubber, gasoline, and other items. The comedy dialogue had to be written carefully. Allen was threading a needle between comedy and national morale, and he did so with great success. New York's mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, once complimented Allen, exclaiming that during a water shortage, the Texaco Star Theater had been able to reach more people in an hour, making them conscious of the city's plight than the city had been able to do through its normal channels for several days. For tonight, Mr. Allen. Well, during the past week, Portland, the president and the mayor of New York have both given the country their recipes for stretching coffee. You've perhaps seen it in the paper, huh? Well, tonight the question is, who makes the better coffee, President Roosevelt or Mayor LaGuardia? <laughs> who are you 
going to ask? Well, whenever I want to know how America is reacting to an important issue of the day, I just drop around to Allen's Alley, Portland. The December 6, 1942 Texaco program gave birth to the most successful comedy device in the 18-year total run of the program. That night, what would come to be known as Allen's Alley first appeared. Allen used to read the newspaper column of O.O. McIntyre called Thoughts While Strolling. McIntyre would describe the sights and sounds he'd met walking through the shabby streets of New York's Chinatown and the Bowery. Allen felt that this kind of routine could come off very well on radio. A loudmouth politician had possibilities. Actor Jack Smart voiced Senator Bloat. John Doe was another early character, portrayed by John Brown. Doe was an average man, squeezed by life from all angles. Alan Reed voiced Falstaff Openshaw, the poet. It was a wonderful device that Fred created, Alan's Alley. He always based his humor on current events, on topical things, which is why he was able to last so long and maintain so high a standard. He didn't have to dig in joke files and find jokes. He made his own jokes about things that were happening. There was a Greek restaurant owner, an old maid, a Russian. The segment was always launched by a quick exchange that began with Hoffa asking Alan what he would like to ask the alley occupants that week. Then they'd take a stroll down the alley, knocking on various doors. Eventually, many of these characters gave way to the most popular incarnation of the alley, with New Englander Titus Moody, voiced by Parker Friendly, the Metropolitan Jewish Mrs. Nussbaum, voiced by Minerva Pius, the Irish Ajax Cassidy, voiced by Peter Donald, and the Southern Senator Claghorn, voiced by Kenny Delmar. Somebody, I say, somebody now. Yes, Claghorn's I Claghorn's the name, Senator Claghorn, well, that now, is. Look, I know. Something tells me you don't remember me, son. Look, I remember I'm you. I'm from the South, the Bone and Possum Paradise. Now, look, Senator. The only plant life I have around my house is a Virginia creeper. Now, wait a minute. Every time I get chicken pox, they're Southern fried. <laughs> Senator. Remember me now, son? No. Don't say no in my presence. Why not? And oh, that's North abbreviated. <laughs> the entire alley was allotted five minutes with laughter. Each character had one minute and 15 seconds for their lines. This was an issue because the program often ran over their allotted time slot, getting cut off the air. It seemed that, as Fred's comedic feud with Jack Benny simmered, his real-life one with network and sponsor executives continued to boil. It wasn't in Fred Allen's nature to listen to those he didn't respect, or those executives who made sweeping decisions to his program without understanding the program. Your troubles with radio executives came to a head one day, one night, when your Sunday night show was cut off the air. Well, many executives didn't come to a head, and that was our problem there. <laughs> that was our great problem in the, those days. That's what, true. What exactly happened? Can you tell us? We heard always about the vice president. Well, that's explained you know. in the book here, too. Uh, there's a script that explains the whole thing. It says, radio sure is funny, all except the comedy programs. Our program has been cut off so many times, the last page of the script is a Band-Aid. And then Portland says, what does NBC do with all of the time it saves cutting off the ends of your programs? And then I say, well, there is a big executive here at NBC. He's the vice president in charge of, uh-uh, you're running too long. And he sits in a little glass closet with his mother of pearl gong. And when your program runs over time, he thumps his gong with a marshmallow he has tied to the end of a xylophone stick. And bong, you are off the air. Then he marks down how much time he has saved. And then Portland says, well, what does he do with all this time? And then I say, he adds it all up, 10 seconds here, 20 seconds there. And when he saved up enough seconds, minutes and hours to make two weeks, 
NBC Let's the Vice President use the two weeks of our time for his vacation. And Portland says he's living on borrowed time, and I say, and he's enjoying every minute of it. And that's why the man cut us off. He claimed that we were insulting the executives, and I claimed that it was impossible at that time for the executives who are rampant on the network. It was impossible to insult them. But now, what was the real problem? They would cut you off a little early at night, or you would run long? Well, the problem was that it was impossible to judge the running time of a comedy show because if your audience was exceptionally good, you might allow... We used to allow over five minutes and 30 minutes just for laughter. And some nights, if things were hilarious or there were mistakes made or ad-libbing or things like that, uh, we'd be long. And uh, then we'd be nipped off without any warning at all, mm-hmm. you know, because you had to get the final... No, uh, I hate to be should... cut off. I get furious at well, my Well, especially on a comedy show, because sometimes you spend all of the time, your, your premise is established and your plot and all that, and you come to the end and the end is gone. We were the first one, as far as I ever know, to put the end of the show on the next week and start with the beginning of it. <laughs> oh, dear. But it just seemed that there was no flexible approach to the problems of the medium, you see. It was more important to get off on time than it was to be good. The New York Herald Tribune critic John Crosby later wrote that part of what made Fred's battles with censorship so difficult was that the man assigned to review his scripts had little sense of humor and frankly admitted he didn't understand Allen's peculiar brand of humor at all. As the host and writer, there was no one who understood the Fred Allen show like Fred Allen. This fight, however, was getting to him. In 1944, he had to quit the Texaco Star Theater as a battle with high blood pressure forced him off the air. All right. Who is the sixth president of the United States? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams is correct. And Mr. Myron Proudfoot is king for a day. In the fall of 1945, Allen returned to radio on NBC Sundays at 8.30 with the Fred Allen Show, sponsored by Blue Bonnet Margarine and Tenderleaf Tea. With he and Jack Benny back on the same network, the two rekindled their feud. It came to a climax on the May 26, 1946 episode with a sketch entitled King for a Day. Benny pretended to be a contestant named Myron Proudfoot on Allen's new quiz show, satirizing the big money game shows of the day. The skit was mostly ad-libbed, and the ending was a surprise to everyone, including Jack Benny, except for Fred Allen. 200 pounds of self-hardening putty for King for a Day. Just what I need. Just what I need. This is just the beginning, King. King, you are over 35. By two years. Fine. That jumbo cotton, Uncle Jim, for his majesty. He is over... <laughs> Effie, Effie, that's what? yipe, backwards. <laughs> and here, the piston rod from a genuine Baldwin locomotive for his majesty, the king. Small <laughs> locomotive. And here, from Melody Lane Music Shop, this case of 2,000 soybean mandolin picks. These are the mandolins. I just keep pinching myself to believe it. Immediately after this program, your majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11-5 garbage run through the Bronx. At night, in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. I'm king for a day! 
that's not all. Therefore? Yes, we're going to start right now to make you look like a king. Sam of Sam's Super Shoe Shine Stand is here to brush your shoes. All right, Sam. Sam, watch out for the buttons. Next, the president of the Busy Bee Hat Cleaners is here to block your hat. Take the king's hat, Mr. Bumble. And change the newspaper in the hat bag. Your suit is a little baggy, King. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. Wait, wait. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. For 15 years, I've been waiting to catch you like Alan, this. Alan, you haven't seen the end of me. It won't be long now. I want my pay. Well, if you don't know what day today is... Today is the day to get out the tall glasses. The iced tea season is here. Time to enjoy iced tenderleaf tea, one of summer's main attractions. Yes, iced tea is raised to its ultimate best by the use of this richer blend. In fact, the iced tea season has played a big part in making tenderleaf tea so famous for flavor. Flavor means more, it's more important through the summer months. So everybody sets out to get all the flavor going, and that leads straight to tenderleaf tea for finer flavor and more art. In spite of melting ice, the richer goodness of tenderleaf tea persists. The last swallow of the grass is still delicious, still flavorful tenderleaf tea. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. You'll notice that announcer Kenny Delmar is unable to get the final Tenderleaf Tea commercial out before the program time on the air ran out. NBC executives were incensed. Allen tried to explain that there was no way to predict how long an audience would laugh. Depancing Jack Benny in his studio certainly caused the audience to lose control. In October of 1946, Allen wrote a skit called The Radio Milkadoo, containing references to the hucksters of radio the vice presidents and clerks who, confidentially, were a bunch of jerks. He was censored by NBC. No longer was Fred Allen allowed to ad-lib. He took out his frustrations in the press, calling the censors the executive fungus that forms on desks. He claimed they were molehill men, because every day they went into work with a pile of molehills on their desk and had until 5 o'clock to turn them into mountains. Shortly thereafter, when on the air, the network cut him off in the middle of a joke. But other comedians joined in. Red Skelton mentioned Allen on his show and was immediately cut off too. But he kept talking for the studio audience, telling them, You know what NBC means, don't you? Nothing but cuts, nothing but confusion, nobody's certain. Bob Hope mentioned Allen and got censored. Finally, Dennis Day took the last shot at NBC on his Day in the Life Wednesday night sitcom. I'm listening to the radio, he said to his girlfriend Mildred. I don't hear anything, said Mildred. I know, said Dennis. Fred Allen's on. NBC announced shortly thereafter, that its comedians were free to say whatever they liked. It didn't matter. They had been doing it for years. Fred Allen had finally won. I have been in vaudeville, I have been in the theater, I have been in motion pictures, and I have been in radio. Currently, I am in trouble. Trouble spelled sideways is television. <laughs> television has not only changed the lives of the performers, but the lives of many innocent people. I heard of a sad case where, after a couple got married on the bride and groom television program, 
They learned that their marriage will not be legal in 12 states for six weeks until the kinescope is shown. In 1948, Jack Benny's accountant discovered a tax loophole that allowed performers to incorporate as businesses, selling their show to the network as a business and saving hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax money as a result. Benny brought the idea to David Sarnoff at NBC, who hesitated in making a deal. William S. Paley jumped and bought the Jack Benny program for CBS. Following Benny's jump to CBS were Amos and Andy, Bing Crosby, Burns and Allen, and Red Skelton amongst others. It completely changed the balance of network power, and oddly enough, left Fred Allen as the sole big Sunday night comedian remaining on NBC. He was able to negotiate a better deal, and for a short time, in January of 1948, The Fred Allen Show was radio's highest rated program with a rating of 28.7. Then on March 21, 1948, a new show called Stop the Music debuted on a relatively new network, the American Broadcasting Company. The show played on audience greed. Listeners were called at home and given a musical question, which if they got correct, gave them a chance to win huge jackpots and prizes and savings bonds. By July, Allen had fallen to 17th in the ratings. In your book, Treadmill to Oblivion, mm-hmm. you say that radio is dying, that the giveaway programs forced people to give away their radios. That's in fact, right. you call giveaway quiz programs the buzzards of radio. That's true. How did you try to handle the situation when Stop the Music came on at the same time as your Sunday night show and took over? Stop the music can't take all the credit. The problem came when Jack Benny and Amos and Andy and Edgar Bergen all went over to the other network and our show was left alone. We stayed with NBC and we were sort of vulnerable because most of the audience up until 8.30 went over to the other network or 8 o'clock I guess it was. And we were a show that was 18 years old and consequently a new show which appealed to greed and, you know, supposedly the money was available for people. Actually it wasn't. That's explained in the book too. But the coming of the quiz show showed that the interest in the advertising part of the business, the the advertising money supports the the programs, they were interested in the cheaper shows that would get the larger audiences for their advertising purposes. They had no interest in the development of talent or in the quality of the shows. And consequently, when the quiz shows were cheap, then they became very popular, not because the public wanted them or because they were exceptionally good. It was principally because they were cheaper. And uh, I could see that nobody profited except the man who owned the quiz show. The network didn't profit because they were advertising 20 products who were giving their products to the people who owned the quiz show to advertise for nothing as far as the sponsor was concerned. They had no musicians on They had nobody on there. It seemed that inevitably he would fall. By the late 1940s, he found a battle he couldn't win against television. The chore of producing a weekly radio show, something he called the treadmill to oblivion, was becoming too much. I left radio. Partly radio left me, and then I got the idea, and I left radio. No, I was ill at the time, and I had to quit for a while. By the time I got better, radio had sort of gone over the hill. I hope it hasn't now, because I love radio. Well, radio... I'm mad about this microphone instead of three cameras with... That's true. I think you get the better attention from the audience, because the audience has to join you and use a little imagination, where on television you have no imagination at all, including the people who are pushing the cameras around because they have very little respect for the actor, too. You can create an atmosphere or establish a locale at a microphone, Mm -hmm. but you can't do that in television unless somebody paints a scene or unless the camera is at a certain angle. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that uh, television is a triumph of machine over people. 
The Fred Allen Show drew to a close on June 26, 1949. His final guests were comedian Henry Morgan and, of course, Jack Benny. In this skit, Henry Morgan needs to borrow $300, otherwise the Mohawk Loan Company will repossess all of his furniture. Fred takes him to Jack to see if he'll lend Henry the $300. Jack's busy vacationing in his own money vault, spending the summer counting his money. Mr. Morgan, if you would do as I do, you would need $300. Well, what do you do? Well, after a hard day's work like you, I go into a bar. And uh, you buy a drink? First, I let out a shriek so everybody sees me, and then I faint. You faint? A crowd gathers. Somebody gives me three or four brandies to bring me two. <laughs> I get up off the floor, shake hands all around, and leave for dinner. Do <laughs> uh, you eat alone, Mr. Benny? No, I usually find a group of friends at a table, and I sit with them. Who pays for the dinner? Well, all during the meal, I keep feeling my pad of butter. You keep feeling your butter? Yes. When it comes time to pay, I reach for the check. While my hand is slipping around, somebody else picks it up. <laughs> well, uh, I'd like to know something. After dinner, do you go out to a nightclub? Always. I order champagne for everybody. And then just before the floor show finishes, I swallow four sleeping pills fast. Four sleeping pills? Yes. I don't know how the party ends up or who pays the check. I just wake up in bed the next day well-rested. <laughs> You see, Henry, Mr. Benny really knows how to live. And nobody ever made me this cheap on my own program. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Chief, Mr. Benny, I'll certainly follow your advice. Oh, uh, there's just one more thing. Yes, Mr. Morgan. Can you let me have $300? Yes, Jack. Henry has to have $300 by 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock? Why, it's 5 after 4 now. Excuse me, that's the phone. I'll answer it in the booth. Fred, it's five after four. I'm ruined. Now, Henry, Henry, don't go to pieces. But, Fred, my furniture, my moose head, the Mohawk Loan Company will take everything. Henry, I'll go home with you. Maybe I can talk to the shyster who's president of that Mohawk Loan Company. Well, I'm sorry, fellas. I have to leave. That phone call was urgent. Some business just came up. Well, let's go, Henry. Maybe I can give you fellas a lift. Which way are you going? Well, I'm going home. I live on East 61st Street. Really? I'm going to East 61st Street. I live at 331. Now, that's a coincidence. I'm going to 331. Then you must be coming to my house. I don't know. I have to pick up some furniture and a moose head. Jack Getty. Besides running a turnstile in the subway, a slot in the office. I order. also happen to be the shyster who's president of the Mohawk Loan Company. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Fittingly, the show ran long, and Fred Allen's final show was cut off the air by NBC. When Fred Allen and I worked together for two years on the big show, he was certainly the rock of Gibraltar to all of us. And I remember, as I think you probably all know, we've read so much, heard so much about him, he was a deeply religious man. And every Sunday we'd break between about 10 and 11.30, and he and his beloved Portland would go to church. And I'd always say, well, darling, burn a candle for me. And when we went to London and Paris to do the big show, when we were in Paris... Fred was a great walker, and he very rarely took a taxi or a car, and he wanted to find a church, and I asked him, couldn't I give them a lift in my car? And we had a French chauffeur, and he uh, drove him to this beautiful church. And as Fred got out, he said, do you think we'll need an interpreter in there? An hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as... Fred Allen. Mindy Carson. Jimmy Durante. Jose Pereira. Portland Hoffa. Frankie Lane. 
Paul Lucas. Ethel Merman. Russell Knight. Danny Thomas. Meredith Wilson. And my name, darling, is Lula Bankhead. <laughs> November 5th, 1950, at 6 p.m., NBC, in an attempt to revive the ratings in its Sunday night time slot, launched a new 90-minute star-studded program called The Big Show. It was hosted by Tallulah Bankhead, written by Goodman Ace, with music by Meredith Wilson, announced by Jimmy Wallington, and a rotating weekly cast that included everyone, from Danny Thomas to Ethel Merman to Fanny Bryce to Bob Hope, Groucho Marx, Eddie Cantor, Rudy Valley, Danny Kaye, Judy Holliday, Ed Wynn, and Fred Allen. Ace had long been an admirer of Fred's work. Allen appeared on 24 of the show's 57 installments, including the landmark premiere, and showed he had not lost his trademark ad-lib skill or his wit. It was in one of the many acerbic letters I got from Fred when I was in Hollywood that he wrote his now famous description of the West Coast. California, he said, is a wonderful place to live if you happen to be an orange. One day I asked Fred why he always typed in lowercase. Doesn't the shift key on your typewriter work, Fred? And he said, yes, but I've never been able to shift for myself. Each episode cost over $100,000 to produce. Hopes were high. Before the show's launch, the entire cast flew out to London and Paris for a lavish publicity stunt. The British media, however, was unimpressed, and the show was a flop. The buckshot method of throwing enough stars against the wall and hoping they stuck fell on its face. Critics found the songs tuneless, the dialogue witless, and the jokes bad. It was a production that had come ten years too late, probably. For now, and since the upcoming virtual, when in Paris he made a few cracks about the French. In Paris, he came up with... Some of the funniest lines I personally have ever heard, he said that the food in Paris is served in flames. For the first time, the American in Paris enjoys food he can read by. He also had the great lines about the money. He said that, you know, French money is made of ridiculously thin paper. And he said that it was the thinnest paper he'd ever seen in public. He also had lines like, French money is Kleenex with murals. He said he'd been blowing his nose in it for five days before he found out it was money. Practically nothing was sacred in that respect to Fred, and many people mistook this as bitterness, which it was not at all. It was the man's innate sense of what was comic and what was attackable in any given situation, and this included, incidentally, himself. Amazingly, the show was brought back for a second season. But by the end, NBC had lost $1 million and made no dent into CBS's Sunday night ratings. The main reason Allen had appeared was that although he and NBC had closed the Fred Allen show mutually in June of 1949, he was still under contract with the network. After the final broadcast on April 20, 1952, Fred Allen was only too happy to walk away. Fred, my darling, you fool. It's so nice to have you back on radio. I've missed you. Oh, so you are the one. <laughs> According to Hooper, you are the one. No, darling, we've all missed you. Why don't you come back, Fred? Well, I'll tell you, darling. 
I, uh, I have been dabbling in something which, for the want of a better name, we shall call television. Please, darling, people are eating. Oh, I'm sorry. Say, you didn't by any chance happen to see me on my first television show, did you? No, I didn't, Fred. Uh, oh, you weren't home? Oh, oh, yes, I was home, darling. Oh, no set, darling? No guts, darling. <laughs> Well, you know television's a new medium, and I have discovered why they call it a medium, because nothing is well done. Oh, very good. Time now for everybody's favorite guessing game, What's My Line? And now let's meet our award-winning What's My Line panel. First, the delightful star of stage and television, Miss Arlene Francis. And now, our charming humorist, Mr. Fred Allen. Allen did break into television. And now... First as the MC of Judge for Yourself, and finally as a regular panel guest on the CBS quiz show, What's My Line? Between 1954 and 56, he also worked as a newspaper columnist and a memoirist, renting a small New York office to work six hours a day without distractions. There he wrote Treadmill to Oblivion, published in 1954, which reviewed his radio and television years, and Much Ado About Me, published in 1956, which covered his childhood, vaudeville, and Broadway years. Treadmill was the best-selling book on radio's classic period for many years. When it was published, he appeared on the Texan Jinx radio show out of WNBC in New York on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, November 24, 1954, to talk about his career. The show was broadcast from Peacock Alley at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. The weather was dreary, which only added to Fred's usual sense of sarcastic humor. Could you just explain, uh, Mr. Fred Allen, what treadmill to oblivion means? Why well, you called it that? Well, I called it that because any successful person, or especially a comedian who gets involved in the mechanized version of the entertainment world, has to compete with the machine. And, of course, he has to lose the battle because the machine is going to survive. And the comedian, I treat comedians because I know more about them and was formerly and am currently an alleged comedian. But treadmill to... Well, you're on a treadmill if you're on... We did 700 and some odd hours during the 18 years we were on radio. And ultimately, the machine is still here, the microphone is still here, and I became ill. Not from reading the jokes, but I mean from pressure and work and sustained aggravation and things like that. I wonder if you you just read the last couple of lines in your book. Well, that that tells you. When the radio comedian's... Whether or not he knows it, the successful comedian is on a treadmill to oblivion. When a radio comedian's program is finally finished, it slinks down memory lane into the limbo of yesterday's happy hours. All that the comedian has to show for his years of work and aggravation is the echo of forgotten laughter and some receipts from the Treasury Department. (laughs) But that's sad. It is sad, but it's true. Everything that's true is sad in a way. By 1954, Allen had already had his first heart attack. Always a letter writer. He reflected upon the lifestyle changes that he was forced to adopt to his friend, Doc Rockwell. Doc, he says I can't eat salt, 
I can't eat sugar, I can't have any meat, I can't lie on the sand, I can't go in the water. I may just as well stay down here and stay in a closet. And a sort of a prophetic little part he had in there, I don't know how it came up, but he says the way to live is to live each day as if that day may be the last and someday you'll be right. Taking one of his regular late-night strolls up New York's West 57th Street on Saturday night, St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1956, Allen suffered a heart attack and died. He was 61. Fred Allen left a legacy as a profound thinker, a tireless writer, and a critic of those who he felt unjustly criticized him. As word spread around the entertainment community, all those who knew him mourned. Jack Benny was profoundly shaken. In truth, as funny as Jack Benny was, his humor was never exactly the same afterwards without his old sparring partner. During the following night's regular Sunday broadcast of What's My Line at 10.30 p.m., barely 24 hours following Allen's death, host John Daly preceded the program with a special message to the viewing audience. Steve Allen took Fred's place on the panel. This is a melancholy time for us, as I'm sure it is for you. I'm sure most of you know that during last night, Fred Allen passed away. It was our thought that tonight we would invite some of Fred's old friends here and we'd talk about Fred, his contributions to American humor and American culture. Or perhaps we would go into the library of film, which we have, excerpt it and tell something of the story of Fred Allen and the great contributions that he made to our industry. Mrs. Allen, the beloved Portland, specifically has asked us not to do that. It was her feeling that if we wished to pay tribute to Fred, the best tribute we could pay him would be to do this program just as if he were here with us. Fred was a professional performer, and he did a great many shows, I'm sure, when he didn't feel like laughing. But he did them, and we're going to try to do them in that same tradition. And so, for Arlene Francis and Steve Allen, an old friend who was kind enough to come and help us tonight, and Dorothy Kilgallen, and Bennett Surf, we are going to do What's My Line the way Fred would have liked to have it done. During the final 90 seconds of the program, Steve Allen, Bennett Surf, and Arlene Francis gave brief but heartfelt tributes to Fred. He was buried at Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York. Both his real and stage names are engraved on his headstone. One of the most touching things was coming back to this office the Tuesday after Fred had died. He'd been there on Saturday. We hadn't been in the office for, oh, six or seven days. And we never quite were sure when Fred had been in the office. We knew he was there every day, and yet you never, there, were by, there was never any sign that Fred had occupied this place, except if you knew Fred. Everything was neat as a pin. The dust was still neat. He disturbed so little, and yet disturbed so much with his tremendous talent. But personally, he was the most methodical in the finer sense of what methodical means, rather than against the drudgery sense of it. Uh, we walked in that following Tuesday and opened the refrigerator, and there were the two bottles of apple juice and the four or five pieces of fruit and the, and the little container of cottage cheese. And in the bottom of the wastebasket, which was quite clean, were a few little shavings from the pencils he had sharpened, the last pencils he had sharpened, 
But when I opened the secretary drawer, and in it were 12 brown paper bags, neatly folded. These were the bags with which he had brought to work the fruit, the apple juice, and so on. He never threw them away in case we might possibly need them. And the big show, there was a theme song written by Magic Wilson that we always ended the show with. And I would like to end this tribute by quoting the last line on the big show. May the good Lord bless and keep you until we meet again. Good night, darling. So what is Fred Allen's legacy? Well, in his time, he drew praise from his peers, as well as mayors, presidents, and writers whose work is taught in every American high school. In fact, his good friend John Steinbeck once wrote that Fred Allen was unquestionably the best humorist of our time. His Town Hall Tonight news segments influenced people in productions like Johnny Carson, Jack Parr, David Letterman, and Saturday Night Live. Even those in our audience who don't consciously know they've been influenced by Fred Allen have been. He has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for radio and one for television. And he was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1988. If Fred was incorrect about one thing, it's that when he stepped off that treadmill to oblivion in 1949, he wasn't forgotten. His humor continues to live on, as does his legacy, as one of the most well-read, best ad-libbing, iconic entertainers of the 20th century. And speaking of iconic entertainers from the 20th century. Well, good evening, Bing. Good evening, Fred. Say, that applause had a lot of life to it. Did you sense it as I walked yeah, on? It did, the electric quality? It did you uh, Did you have it transcribed out in sunny California for release here in the gloom of West 48th Street? <laughs> Next time on Breaking Walls. A station monopoly complaint filed by the Mutual Broadcasting System with the FCC in 1934 leads to RCA selling its secondary chain, the NBC Blue Network. By June of 1945, the new head, Edward J. Noble, rebranded the network as the American Broadcasting Company, and with the help of Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time, forever altered how radio shows were produced and broadcasted through one word, transcription. The reading material used in today's episode was The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, Treadmill to Oblivion and Much Ado About Me, both by Fred Allen. Selected music featured in today's episode was Swinging on a Star by Bing Crosby, and Over There, recorded live by George M. Cohan. I'd like to thank Larry and John Gaspin, as well as Walden Hughes, for their continued help and support. They host a program, by the way, on the Yesterday USA Radio Network, which you can visit at yesterdayusa.com. The three gentlemen are also members of Spurvac, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio, Drama, Variety, and Comedy. They're having their next convention this coming November 1st through the 3rd at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to spurredback.com. I'd also like to thank both of our sponsors for the episode, the Fireside Mystery Theater and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Both podcasts can easily be found on iTunes. I'd finally like to thank you, the listening audience, your feedback has been tremendously galvanizing, and I'm going to keep pushing forward because since December 1st of last year, monthly plays and downloads for Breaking Walls are up over 1,500%. That means that our audience is 15 times what it was just six months ago. Thank you.
Breaking Walls episode number 82 will detail the breakup of MVC's dual network powerhouse, which gave rise to the American Broadcasting Company. This episode will be available beginning August 1, 2018. In the meantime, the final two episodes of A Man Named Marlowe, our audio drama miniseries set in 1935 Los Angeles and featuring Raymond Chandler's famous private eye, Philip Marlowe. They'll be out in July. Those two episodes will premiere on July 8th and July 22nd. Both shows are available in the same feed and can be subscribed to by searching for Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or at thewallbreakers.com. If you listen to Breaking Walls on your iPhone through iTunes, give me a quick rating. Each rating helps jigger the iTunes algorithm into action and helps more people who'd potentially love to know about the golden age of radio discover the show. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. I'll be updating the Patreon feed with new goodies this Independence Day weekend. And by the way, can you believe it's already July? (laughs) Time flies on this treadmill to oblivion called life. But until July 10th for episode 5 of A Man Named Marlowe, and until August 1st for Breaking Walls episode number 82, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 81. I hope you have a wonderful Independence Day weekend. If you're here in the good old U.S. of A., catch some rays, catch some hugs, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.